Good morning, church. How are you guys doing today? Good, good, good. For everybody joining us online, welcome in, welcome in, welcome in. Great to be with you guys today. Today, today, today. Hey, do you guys mind if I teach a little bit today? All right, I got to teach a little bit today. You guys okay with that? Good with that. I don't know why you showed up, but that's what I got to do today. Um, The first thing I got to teach you, though, is that I cannot teach you everything. All right? And that's not because I'm a bad teacher. It's just because of our subject matter. Today, and, and really every day, we're talking about a God who cannot be fully grasped or understood in his entirety. And so today, I'm starting this way to try to get us to this place where we understand that there are some things about God that we just, in our finite human minds, we're just never going to fully be able to get our hands around. Which is why I believe that in the book of Deuteronomy, God was trying to explain a little bit of this to us. And he said these words in Deuteronomy 29, 29. He said, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed, they belong to us and our children forever. So he makes this differentiation that says there are some secret things. And those things belong to God. But at the same time, there are revealed things. There are things that God illuminates through his word, through life, through our experiences with him. There are revealed things. And those revealed things, those actually belong to us. We're on the hook for those things. Those things are supposed to be ours. And we're supposed to pass those down for generation to generation. But because we have a God like ours, and I'm glad we do, there are some things about him that we cannot fully get our minds around. And our job is to believe and obey the things that have been revealed, not try to understand all the secret and hidden things. How many of you have a dog? Anybody got a dog? Any dog people in the room? Is it, is it a cute dog, ugly dog? Are you one of those people who let your dog lick you in the mouth? Don't raise your hand. Yeah, I'm glad some of y'all said, ooh, I've seen, there's, yeah, don't do that. It's gross. Stop that. Thus saith the Lord. Um, but it, say you do have a dog, which is great if you do. Dogs are awesome. I, I, if I was going to get an animal, it would be a dog or a puma, uh, one or the other. I will get a dog. And what I'm getting ready to try to do today is the equivalent of you taking your dog that you love and, and sitting him down and kind of looking eye to eye with him or camera to camera and going, hey, dog, I'm going to get you to understand the Internet today. So that's kind of where we're at. It's like a dog trying to understand the Internet. It's us trying to understand these unfathomable bigness, huge details and huge things of God. And that's kind of where we're going. And I kind of take us there today because today we're going to go to things and topics like free will. We're going to go to topics like predestination, God's election, God's sovereignty. We're going to ask some of those bigger questions like, if God knows everything, well, did I really choose him or did he already know what was going to happen? Do we choose God at all or does he choose us? Why would God create a people that he knew would never choose him. Those types of things are what we're gonna dive into because again, we're, we're walking through the book of Ephesians to try to figure out who God is and who we are and what we need to do. We're trying to figure out our identity and why we are even here and what we need to do while we are. And these questions, they are big questions. They are great questions. They're questions that have kept theologians and scholars and pastors like myself up at night for generations. But I do believe these are questions that we can lean into. We can not just skip over because they were too hard. And so today we're going to have to put on a little bit of a theological big boy and big girl pants to kind of navigate through some of what we're going to get through. But I believe as we do, the word of God is going to reveal the truths that we can get and the things that are meant to be secret. Hopefully we even leave going, God, I praise you for the parts of you I don't even understand. So if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to go to the book of Ephesians. That's where we're going to start. Ephesians 1. 
I have good news today. We're going to make it through verse 1 all the way today. (laughs) We're going to actually get all the way to verse 4 today. How about that? In Jesus' name. Hey, um, you don't have to be old to be old school. In uh, old school church, we used to stand up when we would read God's word at the beginning. And so I'm going to invite you to do that. I know some of you just got comfy. Uh, some of you just got logged into whatever app you were on um, before I start talking. I'm going to invite us to stand and honor God's word. We're going to read verses one through four. And then we're going to dive into it. All right. Uh, you can mumble along where you sit. You can shout along. You can read. I'm going to read, be reading out of the NIV and then uh, we're going to go through it together. So this is the word of God. Paul to the church in Ephesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are an unfathomable, unsearchable. We are unable to fully know you, but we can come into rooms like this and God begin to see what you have revealed to us. There are aspects, there are truths about who you are and who we are that we can come to a place where they change our lives for the better. And I pray that we show up today, God, desperate to see you for who you are. Uh, Jesus, I pray that, that, that we wouldn't, if there is, is meat on the bone today, Jesus, that, that we wouldn't leave it there. That today may even be a day where, where some of us go from, from spiritual milk to spiritual meat that we would be willing to do that. We would really be willing to engage mentally, engage our hearts so that we can lean into your word so that by the power of your word and by the preaching of your word, you would begin to allow change to happen in the ways that only you can make happen. Not by the power of my words or the eloquency of my speech, but by the power of your Holy Spirit matched up with the, the same Holy Spirit that is in this room right now. It's the same Holy Spirit that put these words on the page. So we, we pray that you would move, you would work in our hearts. For our sake, yes, but for the sake of the lost around us, for the sake of our futures, for the sake of generations to come, that we would be a people who didn't just hunger for your word, but we're satisfied with your word. We're radically changed by your word. And so that the world looked different because of it. In your name, amen. All right. Today's going to be a Bible open all day kind of message. So get it open, keep it open, go to Ephesians 1, and let's, uh, let's look at what we got going on. Ephesians 1, 3, we're going to start there. Ephesians 1, 3 says this. Paul, he's writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundational world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So let's back up right off the bat. Here's what I see in these two passages. We have got to figure out who us is. All right. So first of all, he says, blessed be the father of the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse three or four, even as he has chose us in him before the foundational world that we, that's the us, should be holy and blameless before him. So right off the bat, what we've got to figure out, and the first thing I come to, and I hope we see in this, is if we're going to grasp these two verses, we've got to figure out who us 
is. And that's what we're going to walk through today is first off, who is us? And then how did he choose us? And then why did he choose us? That's what we're going to walk through. That's what we're going to do our best to try to figure out today. So the first question, again, is who is us? This us that this verse and this passage speaks of, who is it? Well, two things. It is those who are chosen him. And remember, I've told you this before, as we go through this, the best thing to interpret scripture is what? Scripture, yes. And so if we wanna figure out who is us, who is this us, who gets these blessings, who is chosen from the beginning of time, who is that? It's those who are chosen in him, the faithful in Christ. If you don't know where that's at, that's Ephesians 1.1. Just go a couple verses up and that's where Paul says, hey, to the faithful in Ephesus, to those who are in Christ. So Paul is talking about, that's the us. Now, not only is it the us in Ephesus, it is also the us in the room. In the same way that Paul said, you are in Christ to that church. He's saying, for those of you who are in Christ at McDonough, you have this dual citizenship. You're both a part of this community and part of this heavenly community that is those who are in Christ by faith. And so he starts out by saying these incredibly powerful things. And that's the first answer to our question of who is the us. The us is those who are in Christ. Go back to our thing. So what he does here, and I love this, he starts out this, this idea of trying to understand and grasp this by going, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. So blessed is the one who has blessed us with all of the spiritual blessings. So right off the bat, Paul is coming to this place where he's going, if we're gonna understand what has really been done for us, it starts with praise. It starts with adoration of God. And what you see from verses three to 14 is God, uh, it's Paul praising God for what he has done. He starts out in verse three and goes, blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And everything that flows from there is explaining what it looks like to be blessed by God and what it looks like to receive these spiritual blessings from him. So let's, let's do our best to kind of walk through this verse by verse, word by word. So he starts out and he says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Now, remember, I have my white shoes on. I told you this from the very beginning when we started this, those two words in Christ, that is key and foundational to being able to understand what in the world is going on in Ephesus, what in the world is going on here, and how do we be people who understand who God is and understand who we are in him. That if we're not gonna get any of that, if we don't know what it means to be in Christ. All right, so we explained that a little bit. If you missed week one of my kind of talking here, Eric gave his story, then I came in and talked, and we leaned in heavily into what in the world it means to be in Christ. If you missed that, go back. I'm gonna do again what I told you we do to take God's word, to interpret God's word. What does it mean to be in Christ? If you're in the book of Ephesians already, which I hope you are, just chapter one, go to verse 13. This is where I would say Paul explains what in the world does it mean to be in Christ? He says this, and you also were included in Christ. Okay, when, how? When you heard the message of truth, the Bible makes it clear over and over again that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the very word of God. So how do I become someone who is in Christ? It wasn't just by looking at Mount Everest or looking at some you know, beautiful waterfall and going, oh man, God, there must be a higher power. Yes, you can look at those things and go, there is a higher power. There must be a God out there. But none of those things said he sent his son to die on a cross for you. You're not gonna look at a waterfall or a mountain and get to that place. That comes through the word of God because that's the message of the truth. That's the gospel, the God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that you could have salvation. 
So he says, you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, when you believed. So how do I become in Christ? When does that happen? When I hear and when I believe. When I hear and I believe. And it says, after I hear and I believe, it says, I'm marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. I can't get into all the, the magnitude of the Holy Spirit today. That's verse 13. I'll probably get there sometime around December. Um, but that's what it means, first and foremost. Again, we're going through this kind of word by word, verse by verse. That's what it means to be in Christ. So he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Now, this is what I want to talk. He says, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, what are we talking about there? Again, we're going to walk through this and try to grasp this. What, what are we talking about there? He has blessed us in Christ. Okay, so we get understand. Well, now we understand what it means to be in Christ, that he takes my unrighteousness. Now I have his righteousness. And when God looks at me, he sees what Jesus has done for me. That's by faith what has happened. Now I'm in Christ. Now he says, because of that, I now am blessed because I will receive every spiritual blessing. What in the world are we talking about there? Again, I'm going to do my best to try to get this into a place that you can understand. Now, first of all, most of us read that and we go, every spiritual blessing. And right off the bat, we go, okay, that happens when I die. I get those when I die. Because you read the other part in the heavenly places. It only happens when I get to heaven. But the best that I can tell by interpreting what this means, when he says, you'll be blessed with every spiritual blessing, is this truth in the reality Again, going back to verse 13, it says, you are marked with the deposit of what? The Holy Spirit. So now that I'm in Christ, I have the Holy Spirit inside of me as a spiritual deposit guaranteeing that I am in Christ. And so every spiritual blessing, what happens to be the third member of the Godhead that is actually in this thing? Spiritual blessing, the Holy Spirit. So what is every spiritual blessing? This is mind boggling. Everything, every blessing that God, his spirit could ever bring about in your life. He says, for those who are in Christ, every blessing that the spirit of God could ever bring about is yours. And that's like, just sit in that for a second. That everything God can do, he will do for you. That's our gospel. See, that's, that's the magnitude. And see, like my prayer for you this week has been that we would begin to just pause and sit in the wonder of something that magnificent. That everything that the Holy Spirit of God, every blessing that the Holy Spirit, what can the Holy Spirit do? A lot. Everything that the Holy Spirit of God can do in you, with you and through you, he is promising that that's gonna happen. Now, the reason we're not super amped about that and people aren't like, you know, taking their out, your shirts off and swinging around there. Whoa! Like the reason nobody is, you know, you, you came in looking for that today is because, hold on, this thing is about to get, sorry, I can tell bad things are about to happen with this cord. I got sweaty and it started to get sticky. Um, TMI. Um, so he says, you're blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Now, this is where we go. I wish that word spiritual was physical because I would love to be blessed in Christ with every physical blessing because then I would be out of debt because then my health would be good. I would have a full head of hair again. I would not have wrinkles there and there and there and everywhere else. My kids would act right. They would get into that school. 
things would be good. If I was blessed with every physical blessing, things would, like most of us, like if we're just being really brutally honest today, we say life would probably be easier if I was blessed with every physical blessing. But the problem with physical blessing is the physical world gives us those blessings and that physical world can take those things back. The reason that why he says here is you are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That means that the Holy Spirit gave it. The Holy Spirit gave it. If God gave it, then the world can't take it. And that's what he's after here is you are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Now, this last little part where it's like, okay, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What do we, what do we mean there? Does that mean that I only get these blessings when I go to heaven? I don't think so. We talked about this a little bit as we kind of intro this series and we talked about this a little bit here at MCC is as followers of Christ, we have to embrace this paradigm of the already and the not yet. Already, not yet. So when we talked last week about what does it mean to be a saint? Well, I am already a saint. The same way we, you know, we held up a, a log and we said inside this log is a baseball bat. It is already in there, but it is not yet a baseball bat, right? So he's making the point here that these spiritual blessings that we will receive in the heavenly places, they are something that we are already going to experience in this life, but not fully in their entirety. If you're in the book of Ephesians, which I hope you are, I would invite you to stay in chapter one and just walk on down to verse 18. We're gonna look at verse 18 through 21 to hopefully try to explain why in the world Paul is trying to anchor our life, not in the physical blessings and they're coming and going in this life, but trying to anchor our heart and our hope in the heavenly realms. We're gonna hopefully see why he does that. Look at verse 18 through 21. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you by the riches of his glorious inheritance to his holy people. What a sentence, that your eyes may be enlightened. Verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Lean in here, that power, that power that gives you all the riches, that power is the same as the mighty strength, okay? So, so the power that gives you your promise, that gives you the purpose that you have to live in this life, the power that's bound up in all of this. Look, he says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. All right, that's powerful right there. Like, think about, I mean, this is like, this is the mighty power that God exerted when he raised Christ up. You know, I've told you guys this before. Jesus didn't raise from the dead. The father raised Jesus from the dead to exert his mighty power, to flex on him. Just, I love that, man. And so what's happening here, and you see this as we get down to verse 18, 19, and 20, is Paul is trying to get you to understand the true, most amazing spiritual blessing that is in the heavenly place is Jesus who is sitting at the right hand of God. The Jesus who had always been at the right hand of the Father God, but came to our broken, sin-scarred, messed up world, went through what he went through on the cross and then was raised to righteousness and now sitting at that right hand of God. And so Paul is saying, look, please, please, please do not anchor your ebb and flow, your emotional state, your mental health, your spiritual health on physical blessings. Put them in the spiritual realm because that is where in this heavenly place, that's where your savior is seated. Put your hope there, anchor it there. Our anchor, if we're Christians, our anchors don't go down to this earth, they go up into the heavens. That's where our hope remains and that's where our hope stays. 
And that's verse three. And that's the end of verse three. All right, are you guys ready for verse four? Okay, <laughs> let's go to verse four. So with all that in mind, he says, even as he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. We should be holy and blameless. Now, this is where this verse gets uh, a little bit more controversial. And this is where we're gonna begin to answer the question of not just who is us, but how did he choose us? So we're gonna run through this. How did he choose us? So he has chosen us. Verse four makes that very clear that we have been chosen. How did he choose us? Let's look at it. It says, even as he has chose us in him. All right, so first and foremost, he didn't just choose us. He chose us in Christ. He chose us in what Jesus did through his death, burial, and resurrection, through coming and living a sinless, blameless, holy life. He chose us in him. And how did he do it? He did it before the foundation of the world. So before any of this happened, he chose us. Now, this is where we begin to enter into some of those big theological questions. Questions like, okay, it says he chose us before the foundation of the world. Does that mean he chose all of us? Or does that mean he chose some of us? Who is us? And how did he choose us? And did God already know who would choose him, so he chose them? See, that this really, this verse here, and, and, and some of them that are like it, they create what are some of the, the most common, most pronounced dividing lines in Christian faith. And this really separates almost all of the other myriad of denominations that we have in, in, in Christianity into its first kind of two branches, which is Calvinism and Calvinistic thinking about passages like this and other passages like this and Arminian thinking in this. And this is all kind of based off of uh, two different um, theologians. One, John Calvin. One is a guy named Jacobus Arminian. Two guys who had definitely different thinking on passages like this. And these big, big questions. And again, this is the point of that message. I'm going to kind of invite you. This is where we're going to learn. This is where we're going to kind of put our theological uh, big boy and big girl pants in and kind of lean into some of this because I believe in my heart is to preach you the whole counsel word of God. And these things, even though we may use some big words, these are the things that we have to understand because these are the things that make us better parents. These are things that help us to be better employees. These are things that help us get out of debt. It's having a deeply rooted theological grounding in what actually has been done by God for us. So I wanna to talk to you about how this has jacked with my insides and my theology and how there are two particular points of, of Calvinistic doctrine and Arminian doctrine. The two particular points of Calvinistic doctrine are some of the ones that almost made me as a young pastor and a young preacher become a Calvinist. And then some that turned me into the Arminian that I am now. There are two primary, uh, there are actually five um, or six points of Calvinism. And they were written to be the opposite side of the Arminian thinking. And so they, Jacob Arminian, he put all of his together and then Calvin got together and with a bunch of council of people, they kind of said, here are our points. And this is what we are. The first one is this doctrine of unconditional election versus 
conditional election. This first one I want to talk to you about today. Unconditional election versus conditional election. Again, this is all trying to answer this question. Who chose who? And when did choosing happen? And who is chosen and who's not chosen? Again, it's bound up in the word. Unconditional election or conditional election. From the Calvinistic viewpoint, and there's, there's many churches out here that, that believe this, and I'm going to tell you even why this is some of what I wanted to believe and, and tried to believe, but I could not get my round around certain aspects of this. Unconditional election would say this, that it is only and fully by the grace of God and his power and his working in your life that you were raised to faith. That, that, that you, uh, to, to use an analogy that oftentimes gets brought up in conversations like this, um, there's, there's a swimming pool and you're in the pool and you're dead. You're dead in the water and Jesus, God, somehow comes to you and not on any of your own volition, raises you up, revives you, and now you're alive. That's unconditional election. There's nothing, there's no condition you met to get elected out of the water. The Arminian side of things would say, we believe in conditional election. And so same swimming pool analogy here, two people, you know, there's, there's a God on this side and there's us in, in the water, so to speak, and you're dying. In your realization that you are dying, you reach out a hand that recognizes and realizes that God's hand was fully already there. God was already reaching in, already longing to pull you out. His character is one who saves, reaching out. And you take your hand and you reach out and you grab, he saves. He's not gonna jump into the pool and force you and, and tranquilize dart you and pull you out of the pool. He's gonna reach in, you're gonna reach out, he's gonna grab you, we're gonna pull you out. And I heard this side of things that said, there's nothing that I did. It is only by the will and the grace of God. And everything within me really did wanna believe this because there's a part of this where I go, well, well then wasn't it me? Like, wasn't my faith contingent on what I did and my reaching out? And I read passages of scripture and it says, we are dead in our trespasses and our sin. And I go, well, what can dead folks do? Nothing, not a whole lot. And then it starts to ask questions like, well, what does dead mean? What is dead? Is dead really like what I think about when I think about dead or is dead more this spiritual metaphor that God's using in scripture? And when we try to figure these things out. Now, for me in my life, I looked at my own story of a kid who came from a very broken home, a kid in a home with, with a drug addiction and a kid with a home in, in physical abuse, a kid whose parents never went to church. And I looked at how God worked in my story and I go, none of that was me. He totally reached in the pool and dragged me out. And so from that side of things, when it comes to unconditional election, I was like, yeah, I can, I can kind of get there. But that's not the only point that is in Calvinistic doctrine around this question of who is chosen and who is not. There's a, another point in Calvinistic doctrine that is refuting one that's in Arminian doctrine. In the Arminian doctrine, there is, it's kind of on the same lines, what we would say, it is complete and total atonement. Total, complete atonement. And what that means is that when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus didn't just die for the ones who were chosen. Jesus died for all, for God so loved the world, AKA all that he gave his son. So that whosoever, 
AKA whosoever, all come to life, faith in him. The Calvinistic side of that would say on this side of things, it is partial atonement, which means, and this is probably the most controversial part of Calvinistic doctrine. It means that when Jesus gave his life on the cross, he only gave his life for those who were chosen. That if you were not one of the chosen, then, then Jesus' atonement was not for you. And see, where the first line of doctrine of unconditional election made me want to be a Calvinist, partial atonement is what caused me to reject it. Again, this is a decision you've got to make on your own. I'm going to do my best to kind of tell you where we're at as a church, where I'm at as your pastor. The problem with me, the problem with this in my mind is it's all good and well when God just loves little old me and pulls me out of the pool and revives me. The problem though, my friends, becomes when I step back and I realize that in the grand swimming pool of life and existence, I'm not the only person in the pool. And I have a hard time chewing on a God and getting my mind around a God. And I, and, I, and I reference his character with the scripture that I read, a God who would just go, I want that one and that one, not 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 that one, but I do want that one and that one and that one and that one and leave the rest of them dead for my glory. And that's, that's for me, it's hard for me to get my mind around that when I look at the nature and the character of God. And so I wanna show you a couple of scriptures that kind of hopefully round some of this out and ho- hopefully gets us to where it's not just me talking to my metaphors and my analogies. Um, the first place I'll take you, and this is Calvinism, that's what we're talking about, is Romans eight twenty nine. So Romans eight twenty nine says, and it's talking about God, for those who he foreknew. Again, God has never learned anything. So when you chose to put your faith in, in, in Christ and trust in him, God wasn't going, yes, I'm glad you did that. Now here's what's coming for you. God, again, if he says he chose us before the beginning of time, what that means is before you, your parents ever saw each other on the first date or you were, you, you, before your dad thought, or your mom was hot, God foreknew you. He knew everything that was gonna happen, all right? And he knew whether or not you would choose him or not. And he created you anyway. And this is where, from the Armenian side of things, we've got to rationalize, how can I have free will, but have been created by God who knows which way my will would go? And that's again, that part where we go, there's some mystery in that. It takes some understanding to, to grasp that. We're gonna spend two weeks kind of walking through some of this. But some of the ways that this gets explained is that this God who is foreknowing, who knows everything, he knows and then he predestines. So he foreknows those who will choose him. And those people, and again, this is from the Armenian side of thinking, those who he foreknows will choose him. He created, and they all have free will. And he foreknows who will not choose him. And those who he foreknew would choose him. He has got a predetermined, a predestined place for them to be. That is in Christ, that's in the heavenly realms, that is in adoption, sonship and daughters to him. He has a predestined determination for those who he foreknows will under the free will of themselves. That's why it kind of goes from election to free will. That's kind of how these arguments fall. I know, I foreknow, so I predestined because I foreknow they will be conformed to the image of my son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, 
he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Another place I would take you here. And this is, this is the one where, again, to me, when you pull this pillar of Calvinistic doctrine out, it all falls. And this is where it fell for me as a guy who really gave my best effort to try to understand both sides of the coin. And the part, again, that, that, that took me away was limited atonement. Because I read passages like this and I can't believe in a God who only died for some, who only came to earth for the chosen, the select. Because I read 1 Timothy 2.3 and I could have given you dozens of these. I'm gonna, for the sake of time, give you this one. It says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. So again, we're talking about God's desire. What, what he longs for, what he wants. A God desires all people to be saved. Again, I'm, I'm, that's pointing to the character of God, one who desires that all people would be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Again, that's where I would go back in here and go, he gave his life as a ransom, not for only the ones who were chosen, but he gave his life as a ransom for all, every single person, all. And so to go back and to, to do our best to try to, to answer this question of, okay, well, are all chosen or are just some chosen? My best stab at answering that question to you will go without a doubt from where I sit, the kind of where we're at as a church is that all are chosen. Unfortunately, many of us refuse to choose God back. Ref refuse to say, I am put, again, all these verses talk about faith. I, I hear, I have this knowledge, I come to faith. The Calvinists in the room and online or th that we'll run into, they would say, well then, isn't there something you've done? And aren't we just saved by faith and grace and, and faith alone? So you're saying that, that you did something to save yourself by your faith, to which I would, I would take you to the book of Romans that says that our faith is what saves us, that, that man could never meet the law, that we could never measure up to those things, that we are saved by faith so that no man can do what? Boast. I can't boast because I didn't work myself into it. And so what the Bible does is it takes faith and it puts faith in a different category so that faith can't be a work. Faith is faith. And faith happened because Jesus awoke that faith in us. I wanna show you this, or read you this passage. This is the words of Jesus now. Jesus in John 6, 44. Write the note down, go back and check out it. In John 6, 44, this is, this is where I don't want you to hear the Arminian side of things going, well, who chose who? And you're just like, well, I just chose God and it was all on me. No, 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 no. John 6, 44 says this. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Okay. So all of the awakening that happened, you realizing that you would drown, all of that in and of itself is God doing that in you. We would call that common grace. 
Grace is what saves us, but God has given us common grace to every person in this room. The sun rises on the rich and the poor. The rain falls on the, the, the mean and the nice. All those things is common grace. God has given us this ability as he's created us in his image to actually understand how broken, shameful, and hell-bound we actually are. That's why, again, I, the verses I showed you, that by faith we heard the gospel for our salvation. And then through faith in what we had heard came to be in Christ. So the best of my knowledge, and again, we're gonna talk more about this next week. If you, get, you fast forward a little bit in your Bible, you go to verse five, it talks about he has predestined us to adoption as sons. We're gonna talk about that next. We're gonna lead even more into this idea of predestination. And what does that mean? And what are we going towards? But to the best that I can tell, how did he choose us? He chose us first and foremost from the foundation of time. And he chose us knowing who in this room would choose him. And somehow, I've got to rationalize both of those two amazing things in our mind. And what I think it boils down to is these two. It's force versus faith. Now, many of you have seen my wife. She's, I believe she's really very, very beautiful, uh, to be modest. When I wanted to enter into a, a lifelong covenant relationship with her called marriage, I didn't find her in ninth grade physical science class and, and, and go down to her ankles and drag her out of the classroom and go, You're, this, is, this is us, we're married. This is, you, I, have, I have elected you to be mine. I'm saving you from all these other men, you're mine. And we, we laugh at that because we know that wouldn't be what? That wouldn't be love. Love would be me pursuing her and wooing her and showing her my character and inviting her in to say, I'm willing to give all of myself to you. Would you be willing to also do the same, to give all of yourself to me? And see, I, I believe that lines up more with our character of our God because I, I don't see love as love rooted in faith if you didn't have the choice. So that's how he chooses. And you play a part, albeit a small part, but you do 100% play a part. And it lays a really big question out there. If he has chosen you, and he has chosen you in Christ. And in Christ, he has already chosen what your life would be. Me and Tim Cheney were talking about this and, and we really don't like the, the, the Arminian thing of like, hey, you're drowning in a pool and you choose to reach out. I almost liken it to this. It's like, you're drowning. God gets under you with a dinghy. You know, you know what a dinghy is, right? Okay, a, a lifeboat, so to speak. You know, some of you are like, dinghy, what? That's weird. Uh, don't do that in a pool. Um, So God comes under you, he's got you there. And all you have to do is just stay. He's safe, like he, he is, he's, I, I've taken care of you. I've got you out from under this. You can live if you stay here. Stay here. I'll satisfy your needs. I'll meet your needs. I'll, I'll supply everything you need. Stay, stay in this relationship, which is why I love the last half of this where he says, okay, not just who is us, 
and not just how I chose us, but now we get to lean into why. Why did he choose us? Why did he choose us? Now, I've preached on this before. And maybe you've heard messages on this before. Why would, why would God choose you? And, and, and a lot of times we go here and well-meaning and we'll get very bombastic in it and get, drive this point home. He chose you because he loves you. He's, he knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows everything about you. He chose you because he loves you. And, and he just has this great plan and this awesome, amazing future. We'll get into Ephesians 2.10. You know, you're his workmanship. You're his masterpiece. You're his poem. He's you're just writing poetry in your life. Like that's the God. And that's why he chose you to do all those amazing things. But all of that is secondary to the reality that God chose you for his glory. Adverse of anything about you. He chose you for his glory because this is where he gets the glory. When God can go, look at what they were. Look at what they are now through me and my son. He gets that glory. So he chose you to get glory so that you, as who you were pre-Christ, can now stand before him holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. That's how we can stand before him. And this word holy is the same word we talked about last week when we did the whole log and baseball bat thing, when he called us saints. This is our identity, a saint. Paul, over and over again, he uses this word, agios, or saint. Do you know how many times Paul called the churches that he wrote to? How many times he called them holy or saints? How many times? 39 times he called them holy or saint. Do you know how many times he called them Christians? None. He's making a point. He's trying to get you to never forget this fact that you are set apart for God, and you're set apart to God. And you're set apart to be, back to our word, just kidding, holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. Now, I, I've had all of this today. This has been the English Standard Version, ESV Bible. Some of you, you're probably reading or you're looking at stuff in an NIV. An NIV it says from the foundational world, he chose you from the foundational world that you should be holy and blameless. And then what's your last two words or three words? In his sight. Now, again, I, I became the disciple that I am under the NIV. The first Bible I ever had was the NIV. I love the NIV. But I think right here in this, this, these two little words, there actually is a lot that we're missing between just being in his sight and being before him. Because that's different, Right? to be in his sight and before him. Now remember, the whole big picture of all of this is about what it means to be in Christ. Now remember what Christ was before you were able to become in him. Was Christ just in God's sight? Or was Christ before him? At the foundation of the world, before he entered into a manger of Bethlehem. Do you think that, you know, it was just in your sight and God was like looking up on the hill to see Jesus's plane take off to go down to Bethlehem? I don't think that's how it worked. I think it was much more of before him. You, you're, I'm, I'm all up in you. You're all up in me. We're like this, son. That was how close they were. It was a before him, not just to in my sight thing. And so that God who has a son who's not just in his sight, but who's perfectly and united in an amazing, unimaginable, in our finite minds way, united to him. That God who has his son, who actually is blameless and holy before him, sends him into a world to take the blame and all unholiness upon himself on a cross. 
dies on the cross so that now you can be entered into if you choose by faith to be in him so that you could be called holy and blameless. Now we come into that equation going, okay, well, I'm, I, I prayed that prayer. I got baptized. I did these things. Now I'm technically, I'm, I'm in Christ. Now when, when Christ was before God, he was before God, like with him, with him, with him. In, not just in his sight, but with him. And we come into the picture and we don't really go after that. We treat it a little differently. Here's how I'd maybe explain it. Like back there in the back, um, sorry if you're watching online, you missed this part. Um, back there in the back, you see a little guy. All right, if you look, you can look by there. He's my kid, it's Ezra, Ezra Daniel Shoemake. Hey buddy, wave at all these beautiful people. All right, <clears throat> that's Ezra, he's my son. And he's now part of the family so to speak, in Christ. So we come to Christ, but most of us treat our in Christness like this. He is in my sight. I can see him. And most of you, this is kind of where you're at with God. I'd rather just know I'm in his sight, but I want to stay in the shadows. All right, look back there. You, you know, from where I sit, I can't see his face. I can't make out his features. And some of us would rather it be that way because if we can kind of in our mind go, I'm just in God's sight, then it makes it easier to sleep at night to know that he doesn't really know all the things that are going on in my life. So I'm going to just imagine that there's this distance and I'm going to be okay with there being this distance because I would just rather be in his sight than before him. But he says, I've come to make you holy and blameless, not just in my sight, before me. But I think sometimes we even see before me and we go, come on up, buddy. Come on, Ezra. Go to the X right there on the ground. We go, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to start going to church I'm going to start giving and tithing and I'm going to get in a group and I'm going to start listening to some different things and start to get some of my stuff together. And now I'm, 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 I'm before him now, but I'm not like before him, before him. I just kind of want to be in the crowd. All right. I want, I'm really want to just be with the thing, but hear me. This God who gave his son, who, knew, who knew, he, he knew every single detail about, he also created you. And he knows every single one of your little tiny weird idiosyncrasies. He wants to use them and redeem them. He knows your history, your story, your past. He knows what you've overcome, what you've yet to overcome. He knows all those details about you. And for some reason, we think we want to just have him be one who looks at us and just goes, stay in the crowd, just fit in, don't cause a ruckus, just be in the middle of everybody. Meanwhile, this is a personal God. We're gonna get into this more next week who said, I'm adopting you as sonship. And no father says, hey, you're my actual son. I know you, I created you. I was there when you were born. Just fit in and stay in the crowd. Just kind of be a number. No God, no father does that. So before him doesn't equal this, this distance, this I'm religious, I'm saved. And this is what before him will just look like me going through the religious rhythms of life until I can actually get to heaven and then really be before him. No, life on earth, Christianity today is this. Come on, buddy, come on, let's go, let's go. Come on, come on. I can't do it all on my own. There we go, you can't make it up here. This is what it looks like. See, that's what I'm trying to show you is this is before him, not out there. He's going, he's like, oh, you're my son. Am I your daddy? Yeah, I'm your daddy. Like this is before him. Now listen, what keeps us from this is that we don't think we're holy enough for this. What keeps us from this is we've got too much shame and blame in our mind for this. 
But our God is not one who goes, you stink, man. Like, like, he doesn't hold us like this. Like you ever tried to give a newborn baby to somebody who's never held a newborn baby versus someone who's had some before? Like you, you can hand a newborn baby to one of the old saints in this church and they'll just get them, boom, that baby be out. You give one to the, one of the teenagers in this room or you know, our young man in this room and they're like, they just look so awkward. They're like, I've never done this before. This is so weird. But that's not our God. He's got a lot of kids. He knows how to hold you. And, and, and what I'm telling you is, is this doesn't start when you die and go to heaven. This starts today because you're holy and blameless before him today. Now, there will come a day <clears throat> where you cross the golden shores of heaven and you see his face in the fullness and he looks you in the eyes and he says, well done, well done, good and faithful servant, well done, son, come on. And he takes you by the hand. He's like, all right, come on, look, look at what I got for you. Every spiritual blessing in Christ, it's all in this heavenly places. And there he is over there, not Eric, but Jesus for real over there. And he shows you around. He's like, look at what we did. But what I'm telling you is, is you don't have to wait till death to be before him, holy and blameless. It can happen today through faith in his son who made all that possible. And as you commune with him today, you take the body, take the bread, take the blood that was poured out for you. I pray that you realize that that has been what has made possible. And maybe you just whisper today as you receive the body of Christ, the blood of Christ poured out for you. And you just say, Jesus, thank you for making me holy. Jesus, thank you for making me blameless. I long to be before you today. Let me feel your embrace. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your love and grace and mercy. Thank you for what you went through so that we could be brought into your family. I pray that you would move all the sin, all the shame, all the unholiness that we think is, is ours and that you would know that all of that was on you on the cross, Jesus, and you were victorious. You hold the keys to death and Hades and the door to the heavenly relationship with our perfect creator father is flung wide open so that we can walk through that door and stand before you by faith today. Move in the hearts and lives of your people so they can experience you for the God you really are one who chose us from the foundation of the world, be holy and blameless before you. In your name.